This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boon people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. When I tell you that journalist and mother of two Melanie Dimmitt's son has cerebral palsy, what kind of life do you imagine? Do you imagine someone that's a bit angry at the world? Do you picture their life at home to be a little bit sad? If your answer is perhaps a bit of a shameful yes that you don't really want to admit to, you're not alone. Melanie would have said the same once upon a time too. But her life is actually pretty sweet. We we have fun, like we laugh, we joke around, like both the kids have a great sense of humour. You know, the thought of someone coming in and seeing us around the dinner table, like, well, there's nothing to see, like, it's just normal. It's not the worst thing in the world. And that kind of is um, symbolic of my whole experience of raising a child with disability. I thought it was going to be awful the whole time. But if you actually look at what our life is like now, it's not. It's so much more complex, light and shade, areas of grade. You're about to hear her incredible story how she found out about her son Arlo's diagnosis, the traumatic birth that came six months prior to that, how she's navigated her career as a mother of two, and all the peaks and troughs that came in between. And trust me, there are plenty of peaks. It will be okay. You don't need to know the future now. Please enjoy this beautiful child in front of you and trust that he will show you the way. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the powerhouse that is Melanie Dimmitt. Melanie, thank you so much for being here. We're going to get to your book eventually, which means a lot to me, but I want to ask you something first that uh, has, I guess, had mixed experiences for me over the last seven months. So I was telling you yesterday that my son was in hospital just for a very mundane respiratory infection related thing. And I just want to know if I was complaining really heavily about that to you when you just received Arlo's diagnosis, Versus if I was doing that just yesterday, can you tell me what would have gone through your mind through those different times of your life? Thank you for having me and for this excellent first question. If you'd been whinging about your typically developing son going to hospital for a respiratory thing, you know, the day after we got my son Arlo's cerebral palsy diagnosis when he was six months, that would have pissed me right off. And I mean, it happens still, even, you know, we're in hospital a fair bit with Arlo for planned and unplanned appointments and for extended stays sometimes. And it's always the parents who, you know, this will probably be the only time their kid will ever be in hospital. This isn't their life. This isn't something they're going to need to do again. And it's those parents are always the assholes. Not that you would be Mm. the asshole, but it's often those parents who are being rude to the nurses, who are making demands, who are just being horrible to be around. So no, that I mean, that still comes up, definitely. But when you did tell me this news yesterday, first off, I was like, oh, love, no need to apologize. I completely understand you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Secondly, I was like, you poor thing, because I'm a pro at hospital now. Like I've mm. got it down. We've got Arlo and my bag packed, you know, all the time. I know our hospital, we're like family with them. The nurses are beautiful. So much so that, you know, we go into emergency, but we sort of get the red carpet treatment straight to the ward if that's what we need. We don't have to wait around long. I know where to make myself a tea. The nurses all know how to make my tea perfectly. You know, once Arlo's stable, it's almost kind of like a bit of a a holiday. Our local hospital is very nice. Every room is private with an ensuite. It's not the worst thing in the world. And that kind of is um, symbolic of my whole experience of raising a child with disability. I thought it was going to be awful the whole time. But if you actually look at what our life is like now, it's not. It's so much more complex, light and shade areas of grey than that. So I'd feel sorry for you because I think, oh, love, you don't even know where to make yourself a tea once you're there. (laughs) Whereas I've got it all down. (laughs) That answer is literally everything I could have wanted from you and more because you've just painted a picture 
of perspective and for anyone that's listening to this to get some guidance because they're in the early days of a diagnosis I want them to know that they're in the right place because if your book's anything to go by this conversation is going to be very comforting and full of hope and while we all have different challenges to do with disability and not with disability you paint a beautiful picture of hope and the joy that is also a part of your life so let's go back to the start tell us about your family and yourself yeah well right now i'm living in the southern highlands of new south wales i moved with my partner ro and our two kids arlo and odie a couple of years ago when COVID happened we were in sydney prior to that uh, my partner and I both work in the media. Um, I come from a very, um, I say journalist, but look, very self-made. I was trying to be an actor for for a very long time and failing at that and ignoring the fact that, you know, my best subjects in school were always English and lit. I was keeping diaries forever, loved reading, um, was just really pushing the acting thing and was never very good at it. Sort of discovered what I was supposed to be doing at around age 26 when I started a blog called melodrama which is really embarrassing but that's that's where it started and I just write about my life and I'd interview my friends who were doing cool things and starting startups and um, I remember in the very early days I'd submit my blog articles Mama Mia used to do like a Friday it was called like a mummy blogger roundup or something and like I wasn't a mum but they'd like put me in the mummy blogger like you'd never get they would never <laughs> say the word mummy blogger now um, but that was sort of my first published work was in the Friday mummy blogger roundup not as a as a mummy and um, in the job I was in at the time, I was uh, working for a company called Page Masters. And my job was to typeset the television guides that go into newspapers. This job still exists 10 years wow. later. But I'd literally be going through putting, you know, 6 a.m. news, 7 a.m. Beth Big or whatever. And through that, I got to do some uh, reviews for uh, DVDs and shows. So I was doing a bit of entertainment writing. And then I started um, doing a bit of freelance writing on the side for Broadsheet. I think you've written for Broadsheet. I have. There you go. Love that. So a bit of entertainment stuff, which I love. Like I love going to plays and reviewing them, reviewing movies, that sort of thing. And that's how I got into writing. And um, I then started another job editing something called um, Margaret G's Media Guide, which was like a big directory, like a physical one, like a Yellow Pages for media outlets, journalists. Um, so it was a really kind of useful job to be doing um, for connections. And through that, I had to keep a really close eye on um, Mumbrella and, you know, new publications that were coming out, people shifting in and out of media roles. And I saw this magazine launched. And at the time it was called the Renegade Collective, um, Lisa Messenger's magazine. Yes, I have her coming on soon, actually. I loved that Thank magazine. I devoured it as a 20-something. Well, she's my old boss. Um, anyway, I saw this magazine came out and I was like, how cool is this? Like, it's a glossy all about entrepreneurs and startups. So yeah, I interviewed a couple of my friends who, well, like one of them was starting a beauty brand. Another one was doing like life coaching stuff. And I pitched these fully written art. I did what you're not meant to do. And I wrote the whole article and sent it in um, to Lisa at the time. And they were like, yeah, cool. We'll, we'll pay you. We'll publish these. And I was like, look, don't pay me for these, have them. But if you have them for free, you have to promise me that you'll commission me and get me to do more work for you guys. And they did. So I started freelancing and mostly just writing for um, what became, it was the messenger collective at the start, then it went to renegade collective, then it went to the collective, then it went to collective hub. So it went through a few iterations, which is very typical of Lisa and her, her pivoting ways. So I was freelancing for them. I was still doing a bit of um, other freelance stuff, writing for wedding blogs and sort of anyone who would have my words. And then the opportunity came up. They said, look, we want a, a, an in-house full-time writer. Are you willing to move to Sydney? I was in Melbourne at the time. And yeah, my partner, Ro and I were like, okay, we'll, we'll do this. We'll move for my job. So we moved to Sydney together and I worked at Collective, yeah, for a couple of years, ended up being a senior writer there. I learned so much from the team there. Like Lisa is fantastic at building incredible teams of people. I've got like lifelong friends from that office who were incredibly supportive, especially with what happened when we had Arlo. Um, but that's where I was working when I got pregnant pretty early on, actually, I think I'd only been there about six months when we got 
pregnant and yeah I guess my plan had you know been to go back there full-time which I did um, when Arlo turned six months but things had not gone as I had planned um so I can't believe that you wrote for that magazine because I genuinely was obsessed over every single issue until it closed I think Yeah, yeah no such a great publication before we actually get to the diagnosis can you tell us a bit about what you planned for that maternity leave as you were saying so you're going to take six months off and then return after that I think it was, well, six months technically till back at the office, but I was going to start writing again. I mean, I had plans to write a book. I think I was going to call it the first hundred days of, you know, being a a typical parent, which is what I thought I was going to be, which would have been an incredibly unoriginal idea that would have gone nowhere. (laughs) Um, But no, I plan to write. I can't, I don't really know. Um, I'm definitely a workaholic. Like it's not a positive thing, but I don't know myself when I'm not working, when I'm not writing um so no I'd planned to have my baby but I was going to journal and then I was going to write and I did I started writing for the magazine again I think four months maybe three months after yeah. was born and just got back into it because I mean I was listening to your chat with um Justine Cullen and I really got you know she makes the point your baby sleeps a lot at the start like you don't really need mat leave until later and I really just wanted to like get back into feeling like me again and that requires me writing so I was I was keen for it I was ready to get back into it and Arlo was making life easy by sleeping a lot when he was little so um my plan was to get right back into it and I did get right back into it it was once I got back to the office and we got the diagnosis that things went off plan but no my idea was very much have the baby back to work baby in full-time daycare moving on I'll be doing both these things I'm really glad that Arlo made that not happen Arlo's made me more of a mother than I ever would have been and I'm super Mm. so I have taken you a little bit too far ahead because I've read your book and I've loved your book which is called special and we'll get to it for anyone that's been introduced to you for the first time via this podcast can you tell us what you're comfortable to go to with your story with Arlo in those early days of birth and six months later getting that diagnosis yeah for sure so our pregnancy it wasn't without drama Arlo had a hole in his heart which we were a bit worried about we thought that would be our problem so we were seeing a cardiologist, we were quite closely monitored and the cardiologist was going to be there um, once Arlo was born, just in case he might need a little surgery. We were pretty freaked out about that. Irony is the heart, the heart hole closed up. That wasn't an issue at all, but we had a whole lot of other things going on. Um, but I mean, aside from that, the pregnancy was pretty normal. I felt pretty well. I worked right up until I think my due date, Arlo didn't come on the due date I remember yeah I was in the office and I remember just being like oh god it actually feels like his head is like right there so I called my brother and was like I've got to go now so but I worked right up until then Um, but then four days later he still hadn't come and I remember Arlo's movements felt a bit different he wasn't I couldn't feel him as much so I was worried and did what they say to do which you know go into hospital and get him checked out and I did and they hooked him up to the heart monitor and everything looked fine and they sent me home but then we were driving home and I was just saying to Ro like no no there's definitely something up go back and they were good they kept me in they checked him again he looked fine but they said look you can just stay overnight we'll keep checking in and uh we can induce you in the morning because you passed your due date if there's a bed in the birthing suite we'll induce you so I stayed overnight they checked his heart a couple of times it all looked fine and then the next morning, Roe came back to the hospital. We were wheeled into the birthing suite and luckily there was a bed available. So I was being prepped to be induced and a very slow process. We were connected to the baby heart monitor. Roe and I were just waiting around for the nurse to go and get her knitting needle or whatever it is that changes you in. <laughs> and we were bored. So we were watching, you know, Arlo's heart monitor and it would fluctuate just naturally. And we were like, oh yeah, high score. Yeah, yeah. And then it just dropped dramatically and we were like, oh, that's weird. So Roe pressed the nurse button. No one came. He was like, oh. So he went out to the desk and was like, can someone come and look? And the nurse came in, couldn't find any evidence of a heartbeat at that point. Very quickly, the emergency button was pushed and it felt like a hundred doctors came flooding in, couldn't find a heartbeat. The decision was made very quickly that this would be an emergency cesarean. And I was just like, thank God, get me out of here. I knew they'd put me under. 
Um, so it all happened so quickly. It felt like they were wheeling my bed out while they were putting me under, while they were shaving my pubes. I was like being prepped in the hall on the way down and just watching Rose poor face like disappear down the hall. And I was just like, thank God, I know I don't have to live through this. Poor Rowan did. He actually has a very traumatic birth story. Whereas I I was unconscious. I the next thing I knew, I was waking up having this gorgeous little newborn with these deep blue eyes put on my shoulder. And I was like, he's alive. We're good. That's it. Hard part over. Yeah. Whereas poor Ro had this trauma of, um, you know, he was going to be invited in for the delivery. They got him all scrubbed up and then they got him to the door and he saw this horror scene of my stomach. And then they said, oh, no, 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 you can't come in. And then he had to sit in a room by himself and he just thought we were both going to die. And the, the, my poor partner just has all this trauma from it. Whereas I'm just so grateful. I just got to not be present for the event. But um, yeah, apparently Arla was very stressed out when he was born from the um, loss of oxygen we don't know what happened it's a mystery which I really like I like that I don't know what happened I've spoken with other parents who you know they fell over or they got uh, some kind of um, sickness while they were pregnant and I'm like man it would suck knowing the thing I love mm. the mystery and really we were just so lucky had we not been in that bed connected to that heart monitor at that time we would have lost him and I just think wow so they said that you would have lost him had he not come out then? they never said it but he would have yeah, wow. Yeah, if we hadn't seen his heart go, like they yeah. got him for 10 minutes and he lost oxygen, but he was, they revived him. And yeah. in addition to that, because they did an emergency cesarean, it's part of the practice that they check your ovaries when they do that. And they found like a precancerous cyst on one of my ovaries. So Arlo potentially saved me. This is all getting very woo-woo. But because of that, I then went into surgery six weeks later and had my left ovary and fallopian tube taken out. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't think I put it in the book. It's funny. It just wow. felt like it was at the time there was so much going on. I didn't even really take the time to think about it. And I was like, all right, that's sorted. I still, I'd get all righty, my right ovary, my remaining gets checked on every six months. And when I'm 40, we'll probably get her out as well, which would be a whole other early menopause situation. Um, but no, a lot happened. But if it wasn't for how Arlo's birth happened, we wouldn't have had Arlo and I don't know what would have happened with um, my ovary. So it was all very fate. And I'm, I always say to people when I share my horror of a birth story, if you take anything from it, please, please, if it feels like your baby isn't being themselves in there, please go and get it checked out. Mm. Um, and like, go, if they send you away, go, go with you. Like, you know, like I knew there was something up. And like I said, we never found out what it was. There was no cord around the neck. Placenta looked fine. It was just one of these things and I love that it's a mystery and that it was more a case of you know we saved him we were so yeah. lucky rather than being able to blame either yourself or healthcare workers exactly. or anything like that and being able to pinpoint it I can totally understand that and I think I would be the same if I was in your shoes so tell us about those early days you obviously didn't receive the diagnosis at birth tell us about how early motherhood played out for you our first week, Arlo was in the NICU. So I got a very relaxing time of recovering from my cesarean in a bed by myself. It's funny, they felt on reflection, you know, I didn't feel sad or, but they were very kind to us at the hospital. They purposely didn't put me on a ward with other mothers that had their babies. They put us on a, in a private room, so I had my own room, and they set up a little bed next to me where Ro could sleep. And Ro would sort of shuttle between my ward and Arlo in the NICU. And before I could go in there, I think it was two days. Um, so he, I got to meet him when he was first born. They wheeled me into the NICU. That was amazing. Like he stared straight into my eyes. Some very kind nurse took a photo of the three of us, Ro, Arlo and me, and we have that. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, yeah, it's okay. He's here. He stared straight. He was so alert and amazing. Um, but in the week that followed, he was in the NICU. They put him in this bed that cooled him down, which is to apparently prevent further brain damage. They knew he had brain damage once they did an MRI. I think that was on day three. Um, before that, Ro was just shuttling up and down, showing me photos and videos. I was trying to um, provide milk for Arlo, but I was so weak. And I remember at one point, Rowan, is so embarrassing, but Rowan like helping to milk me to get- oh, that's love. Like, this is intimate as me, man. This is as intimate as it gets. Milking me into a teaspoon. So Arlo would have like this tiny little bit of- so it was just it was that and like looking at photos of him and then I think yeah it must have been day two I could go down and, and see him we couldn't touch him which was really hard until he came out of this cooling bed 
I think on day three or four and then we could hold him and that was just magic that was like yeah the hardest part of that week was not being able to hold him Mm. and being in the NICU like funny Arlo was there and he looked good and I was so oblivious and I guess it just wasn't even an option in my head that this could be going to you know a something that wasn't perfect I, just, I was sorry because you do hear a lot of a lot of special care or NICU stories at the start but then it's sort of a thing of the past once they're out right yeah. so you would have probably thought the same this is just a short-term thing and we're going to be yeah. okay I didn't even think about it. And because I'm lucky, I'm my dad is a doctor. So I grew up in hospitals. I'm really used to the hospital environment. I love nurses, love most doctors. I really trust them. I feel comfortable. So I was having this relaxing recovery. My baby was being looked after. Ro again was having a lot more stressful time of it running between us both. And, you know, he saw Arlo when Arlo was first born and had his sore head and was screaming. He saw stuff that I didn't have to see, but it was distressing. You know, there were other parents in the NICU um, who I could see were upset and, you know, tiny babies. There are a lot of premies, a lot of babies that did look very unwell. Whereas Arlo was this full term, looked perfectly healthy baby. And, you know, he had such good care and the nurses, you know, once we could hold him, they showed us how to bath him and he fed, which, you know, in hindsight, it was just a miracle. He fed, he breastfed really well. Um, so it was all looking good. The MRI was the day once they did that and they said, look, there is brain damage. I could sense there was a change in the the tone of how the doctors and the, the nurses were treating us. But it was very much like, stay focused on the baby in front of you. He looks good. He looks engaged. Just keep focus on that. And I did. And even, you know, they sent us away after a week. We got to go home and they had a meeting with us, which on reflection, again, this would have been their meet, you know, their bad news meeting but we were very much like oh cool they're giving us a free first aid course and like we get all this special treatment and they they said in that meeting worst case scenario they said those words worst case scenario this could be cerebral palsy and I didn't know what that was and I let that go straight over my head I had no interest in finding out what that was this certainly wouldn't be applying to our family we are absolutely fine this will be fine everything is always fine so we left and went home and had a few weeks months even where you know I didn't give any time to thinking about cerebral palsy we just enjoyed our baby he was beautiful he was engaged I did all the normal mother things I went to mother's group it wasn't until I guess we were getting the two months three months he didn't meet any motor milestones so he had he could do tummy time and hold his head up and I now know that's because he arches like, like that's one of his sort of symptoms so he could arch very well and hold his head up he's a strong a strong kid it's just using the strength is hard for him but yeah never rolled over never sat up he still doesn't his body just is not made to do those things and it's still the case now he's seven left to his own devices he will lie on the floor and smile at you beautifully everything else he needs support with um, but at the time, you know, he wasn't meeting these milestones and, you know, chatting about your experience of this as well in your family. You, people say these things to you to make it okay. Like, oh, boys develop way slower than girls. I had this lovely neighbor who had a daughter at the same time we had Arlo and the two, we'd, you know, play with them together. And she would always say, oh, you know, her daughter was developing probably ahead of time, but she was so kind. She's like, oh, boys are always slower. And, you know, and um, but then as the months rolled on, it became very obvious and certain people knew. I remember a nurse that was helping at our mother's group could tell. And if we had had another baby, if Arlo wasn't our first, we definitely would have known something was up a lot sooner, but we were just, you know, I had no experience with babies until Arlo. Everyone was staunchly like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But a couple of times I could tell people like, Oh, that's unusual. He's very stiff. And yeah, we didn't get the diagnosis until six months. We had to send a video of Arlo to the hospital to be, we were sort of looked after once we left by the growth clinic. Again, I was like, this is just routine. They do this for every NICU. I'm sure it's fine. Um, but we had to send a video of Arlo in when he was three or four months to the physio, the team there. And they wanted us to film him for five minutes on a white sheet. And I distinctly remember filming that video. I spread the white sheet out in his nursery And all he did was arch to one side and stare at his cot leg for the whole five minutes. He didn't have any other movement. I remember looking at that thinking, this isn't good. And yeah, from that video and then from us seeing the team, they were like, this is quite severe. And we were given the cerebral palsy diagnosis at six months. We were given it beautifully by a pediatrician who was very gentle with us and said, you know, CP is a really broad 
thing. Some people have it in one finger. He would have known damn well that Alu did not have CP in one finger, but he just knew that we wouldn't have been ready for that yet. You know, he himself has the child with disability, this pediatrician, and said to us, um, just shared this beautiful thing with us. He was like, you know, this won't be an issue when you're in your bubble at home. This will just feel like family. It's only when you're out in the world that you'll be confronted with attitudes and barriers. And he was so right. And to this day, I'm like, that's, that's so the case. We're fine in our bubble. We're fine. And we're lucky now that our bubble extends to our community, but it's only when you're in spaces and around people that don't get it, that it's a problem. Anyway, we had a great diagnosis story. It was really gently done. Um, but with that, you know, I, I couldn't really remain in denial anymore, which is where I'd sort of I couldn't keep saying it's going to be fine. And, you know, our parents couldn't keep saying that. My mom really struggled. She shared with me, like, it's so hard when you can't tell your own child, like, everything will be okay. She found that really hard. And, yeah, we started. Oh, I feel for your mom thinking of that. Obviously, you know, it's harder on you potentially, but being the mother, watching your child go through something like that in those early days must have been traumatic. Yes. And I mean, I'm grateful now with my kids, at least we know that a disability diagnosis is not the end of the world, like far from it. But, and it's weird, you know, there, there is disability in our family. My mom's one of my um, much loved aunties, my auntie Barb has a physical disability, but yeah, I just don't think about it because I know her. And now it's the same with Arlo, but when you've got this tiny baby and you don't know them yet, and they haven't had a chance to show you what this disability means, it's so freaking scary. So mm. I was terrified. I was really sad. And like, all I could think about was, I wish I could have a crystal ball and see the future and just check that he's definitely walking and just check that there's definitely nothing that indicates he has a disability. I just had, I just thought disability was this horrible thing. I hate, as I say, I was such a fool then. I had no idea but I thought this was the end of the world and I was really, really sad and really scared to the point that I had to write a book to sort of sort myself out. Um, yeah, it was a very hard time those early, you know, weeks and months after his diagnosis. How do you, obviously, when you think back to that time, you know that that was like the depths of the probably the worst sadness you've been through. How do you feel physically now thinking back to yourself then? Obviously there's space and you're positive and you know that your life's good now, but does thinking back to that moment send you to the same dark place just for that moment as you're reflecting on it? Or how do you grapple with that? A little bit. It's interesting um, because because I do do interviews like this because special is still, I'm, I'm so grateful it's doing well. It's still selling. I'm still asked to do these things. I don't like it. I look forward to the day when I'm not talking about it. But in the same token, I see that it's, I would have found it helpful at the start of this to see someone like me who was being honest about how hard this is at the start, but then seeing that they're okay and that they feel differently. So I'm, I'm glad to be able to still do it. I don't like it. I feel, I feel different when I talk about it. Is it almost like it takes you back to being that person as opposed to being this person bit. who's done a lot of work and sees that their life is still good despite its challenges? A little bit. And I also feel shame around, I want to be kind to myself. And I think I did the best I could at the time, but I'm disappointed that I didn't have more awareness, that I hadn't sought out to have more awareness and education around disability and it scares the crap out of me to think I wouldn't have known this and that I would have gone through life. And I don't like the thought of our family without this. I worry about what I would have been worrying about. I worry about us not being as close as a family as we are now. I don't like thinking about what that might've been. And just the sense of oblivion that I now feel, it's not my story to tell, so I won't go into it deeply, but as you know, disability has touched my family very closely with a baby. And I think now about who I was before and who I am now, and I am grateful for that sense of that I don't think I'm an, as oblivious person as I was in the past. So I totally relate to that. What was the turning point for you? When did things start to look more optimistic? And when did you go, actually, I'm going to have a pretty good life? It was always there in Arlo. So whenever I focused on Arlo and looked into his eyes and was with him, everything was great. This kid's awesome. We were very lucky in that he does get sick and has challenges, but generally his baseline is happy kid. So I can't speak for all parents of kids with disabilities. Arlo is charming, gorgeous. We're very lucky. Um, 
the turning point, I guess, you know, as much as I had him there and when I focused on him, everything was good. My brain would just go into this future that I'd imagined that was scary and awful. I was sad. And it wasn't until I started speaking with other parents who are raising kids with disabilities. And that was why I started my book, which wasn't going to be a book. It was just, what's a way I can talk to other parents without having to talk too much about me? What's a way I can get what I need without going to support groups or identifying as a parent in this space? I wasn't ready to identify as a parent in this space because I thought those parents were sad, miserable people. Again, this is, I hate saying this now, but this is how I felt. Um, so I thought, look, I know how to interview people. I love interrogating people. I'll just say I'm writing a book about this. I'll come to it with my story because that'll get me in the door. But then I'll just ask parents, how did you get through these early days and months? What were your coping strategies? What made you feel better? Please, please tell me that the future isn't what I think it's going to be. Please tell me that you're happy that your child is happy. And I mean, that's super simplistic. I mean, what is being happy even? But that's what I that's what I wanted. So I reached out to parents living all over the world, raising kids with all kinds of disabilities in lots of different ways. I found lots of them on social media. Thank frick for social media. I don't know how parents were doing this before we had this enormous network, especially parents with kids with rare diseases. Like we're so fortunate that you can meet, you know, the two other families in the world. That I mean, there's hashtags for every single condition you can yeah. imagine. How did, when going outside is already scary for unique yeah. families... How did they do it without that online interaction? They would have felt so, I mean, this experience is isolating enough anyway. You feel like you're the only person going through this and having these horrible thoughts about it and you're feeling guilty about it. But as soon as you tap into like, we're here, there's a massive network of us. You know, I guess I'm lucky in that Arlo's um, diagnosis is super common. Cerebral palsy is one of the big ones. You've got CP, Down syndrome and autism are the big three, but yeah, like you say, we're so lucky um, with social media that you can find your your people wherever you are, wherever they are. But as soon as I started, um, so yeah, I met a lot online. I met some in Arlo's therapy. You know, we spent a lot of time in appointments. We still do now, but at the start, early intervention, they really cram in the physio OT speech. So I spent a lot of time sitting in waiting rooms and I'd meet other parents in that way. And that, I must say, once we found a good physio and a good physio center, and I was in an open gym with other families and I could see other, it's mostly mothers, other mothers and other kids. I, that was when I started thinking, okay, not alone. Thank goodness for those open plan gyms and for good therapists who will sort of, they're not technically allowed to set you up, but they can kind of stealthily match make you with other parents. So some I met through um, actual, you know, in the real world as well. And once I started having these coffees, having these, it was Skype at the time, this was before Zoom, having these Skype calls, having these phone calls with these other parents, I'd get off the phone and feel better than I had in weeks. And I was like, there's something to this. Not only are all these parents sort of saying similar things, they have similar ways of coping. They all felt similarly, similarly. <laughs> they all feel, you know, the same now. It didn't really matter where they were, what situate or, you know, what their circumstances were, what their child's diagnosis was, if they had a diagnosis. There's something to this. There's so much common ground here and you kind of get this instant rapport. I couldn't believe how quickly I made friends. Like I'd get off the phone having never spoken to this person before and be like, wow, I feel like I could tell them anything. And they've been so open with me. And I just think this experience just take like scrapes off this thick layer of, you know, awkwardness or assumption or like you can just be really raw is very overused, but you can be very raw and real in this community because they get you and you make such fast friends and it's been incredible. And again, like I just hate to think that I would have missed out on, you know, knowing the other parents and also the people who work in the sector, the therapists. Um, and, you know, once I got deeper into this and now that I work in the sector, meeting adults with disability, I hate to think again, how, how petty and shallow my life would have been without all of this. Eyes wide open and so yeah. many learnings. It's such a good point and it's such a relevant point. It seems like in a lot of parenting and perhaps exacerbated by disability is our need to see role models and also our need to be seen and heard. So I'm so glad that you found such a huge community and it really is huge. As you say, it starts off feeling isolating and how on earth is my family the ones going through this to realising that it's actually quite a common thing out there in the big bad world. So I feel like we've skirted around your book a lot because I've read it. I keep forgetting those at home might not have. Tell us more about Special, your book. Yeah, like I said, it started out not being a book. Uh, it was more just like an excuse to 
speak with people and interview them. But um, yeah, everyone kept saying similar things. You know, they were all shit scared at the start of this. And then they all dealt with comparison, but they also found so many moments of joy and hope and sort of learned how to be an advocate. Because at the start, I was like, what is that even? Like, I'm going to get me there with a sign and a pitchfork or something. Like, you don't know what that is, but you're like, this is expected of me. So people were sort of sharing this and how they found their way. And um, the common themes that were coming up, I'm like, these are feeling like chapters or sections. And I started writing things down on post-its and I ended up having like a post-it wall in our kitchen where I'd have ideas and put other ones up. And it was just, it was forming. And um, I was like, there's something here. So I wrote my first 10,000 words. I had help from um, a really good friend who I worked with at Collective Hub magazine, Amy Malloy. So she mentors a lot of people with publishing books and she helped me. She's like, just write your um, write your chapter outline, which I didn't want to do because that felt like homework. But I did that and that really helped me sort of form the book in my head. I wrote a proposal and I pitched to publishers and had really positive feedback from the big ones, Penguin and things. I was like, this is really promising, but it's they said it's too niche. Um, and which I mean, it does, I can understand how, like, I would have thought not being in this sector, I would have thought that too, but I was very lucky that a beautiful independent publisher, Ventura Press run by the amazing Jane Curry in Sydney, she jumped on this. They published the autism handbook as well. So she gets it. She gets this space and she, I'll never forget. She wrote about this email and it wasn't just like, we're interested. It was like, we will publish this book this time next year, when can we meet? And it was just amazing because I was like, I don't want to write this whole thing if it's not actually going to be a book. Getting that deal was so exciting and it meant I was doing this, but also meant I had to do it in like six months. So then I like knocked out. I'd done a lot of the interviews already, but it was like really getting down to it and I knocked out the rest of the book. And yeah, it, it went from there. Um, it got published and it, it did well. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And so I look at you and I think being a mother who's doing paid work is big for anyone, but you have extra appointments on top of what I have in my life. How on earth, and I don't mean to say, how do you do this as though I you're know. this superwoman, because I know that's a really annoying trope that parents of disability get. But how do your weeks actually play out? How do you get to a book deadline when you've got so much else going on? Well, I'm going to be brutally honest here. I had help financial and otherwise. So I, when we got Ali's diagnosis, I was back full time, I think four days a week at um, Collective Magazine and was like, hey, I can't do this. So they were lovely. I went freelance, but they gave me so much work. So I was still writing pretty much as much for the magazine, but I could do it at home and around appointments because Arlo had appointments most days. We lived close to, we were in um, Leichhardt. Most of his therapy centers were around that very central in Sydney. So I I could make that work, but it was a lot of writing at night, writing when I, I was tired, not being precious about needing perfect conditions for writing. At the time, my dad helped us out. He was... <laughs> He gave me like a weekly allowance and that helped. Uh, it meant I didn't have to do as much paid writing because I got the book deal, which was great, but it was a tiny publishing house. I They're not think- lucrative at the best of times. I think I went in there saying, I want a $5,000 um, up front, but no, there was none of that. Um, and yeah, I was just so lucky that this thing was even getting published. So no, I was writing it for free and um yeah, luckily had the time and we made it work with this help from my dad and I just freelance as much as I could and my partner works full time. He's a newspaper editor and I was lucky in that he can work from home as well. So we we juggled. But the timing was crazy because we just had Odie. I think she was three months old when I got the book deal. So I wrote special on my second mat leave. So I actually wanted to get to your daughter Odie next. So you've had this very busy time, but then I guess there's probably a lot of emotions to getting pregnant again and considering having another baby. How did you feel throughout that pregnancy of Odie? It was hard, but we were very lucky that we felt pregnant again straight away. We would never have done it so quickly. Like our kids are less than two years apart, but because of my ovary sitch, my oncologist, gynecologist said to me, you need to complete your family as soon as possible. And we, you know, had just to add some extra pressure, like just keep piling yeah. it on. But I'm kind of glad we did because if we'd thought about it or given it time, we might not have done it. So it was just like, all right, 
hop to it. Let's see what happens. And we were so lucky again. We fell pregnant straight away because what happened with Arlo was a fluke. There was no reason for us to be high risk, but they treated us as high risk because of what had happened. So I went in for heaps of ultrasounds. Um, we tested everything. It was a very monitored pregnancy and it was stressful as fuck having to go. And every time there was something like they thought her head was growing too much for her body. We had a very, you know, overly cautious radiographer who I actually had words with at one point. Cause I'm like, you have just like, she left us with something uncertain one time. And I was just like beside myself. I was like, you can't do this to us. It was horrible. I think everyone thought they were treating us the way that we needed to be, but had I had my time again, I would have had none of that. I would have just had regular two ultrasounds, whatever. It was awful. I was so, I was so sure she was going to die. I was so sure. And it's, it's, you're really conflicted because again, you're like with Arlo, we know he has a disability. That's okay. Like it's not this terrible, inherently bad thing. You know that, but you still freak out that something's going to happen. And then you feel guilty for freaking out. Cause you're like, well, I know this is okay. So why am I so worried I guess you had the double whammy as well of a life-threatening situation at birth too right it yeah. wasn't just a diagnosis which some people their babies aren't immunocompromised or whatever there's nothing that leads them to be unwell when they're out of the yeah. womb you had the double whammy it's scary and you just once something like this has happened to you you know that something like this can happen Whereas before I was like, everything's always fine. Of course it's always fine. Everything has been fine. I'd had shit things happen to me before and everything turned out fine. You realize that nothing is guaranteed. The thrilling part of being alive is that anything can happen to you at any time. And once your eyes are open to that, it's terrifying. So yeah, I'm glad we had to do it quickly. I'm glad we got it over and done with. I'm glad we had a planned cesarean with Odie two weeks before her due date because it was all very controlled, a completely different experience. I got to be awake for her being born. That said, she did have to go to NICU and the nurses were like, we're so sorry. You're the last family we wanted to do this with. She was struggling to breathe a bit. So she did have to go into NICU, but just for an hour or so. But no, it was so different. And I got to have her in my room with me. And yeah, we got to have, you know, the typical experience. I mean, the hospital and things, that wasn't because we were only one week in NICU and the first few weeks and months were pretty, you know, the same with the two of them. But then as soon as she started developing, like, everything about her was so mind-blowing like even just the tiny they call them fidgety movements like Arlo had none of that but the way she moved her fingers and tongue and like every it was just so different which is why again I'm really grateful we had Arlo first because we would have been freaking out knowing something was going on but we were so poorly trained for typical parenthood like I we, I had no expectations and I love this. I think this is a great attitude to bring to parenting. We expected nothing. We were like just do what she does it's fine and you know, I went to her checkup at four months or six months and they were like, is she sitting yet? And I'm like, no. And then got home and sat her up and she could sit. And I was like, oh, she can't actually do this thing. We just let her do her own thing. And look, she was really late to walk. Like she's one of these kids who waits, 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 and then does it perfectly. But again, with Arlo, it was just, everything was out the window. We were just, and you know, because that's the kid it is like Arlo we just watch and see he he's taking the lead we just support him as best we can along the way but Odie just develops she just does it herself so it's been so cool having these two vastly different experiences but in the same token they're so there's so much that's similar with them like they love you know all the same movies all the same songs and they have they have this look that they give each other when I you know they think their parents are being silly like oh that is adorable common ground as well um but I just think yeah like I said it's really cool that we've had these two very different experiences and having Arlo really set us up I think to do parenthood better and because you know I was saying I went freelance with Arlo that was never the plan he was going to go to daycare full-time was going back going to go back to work I got to spend so much time with my baby boy that I wouldn't have had and he's just made me so much more of a mother than I ever would have been so yeah we've been very lucky you've actually touched on something that I did want to talk to you about which is that I think often if it hasn't touched our families or maybe even the early days of when it has we think of disability and the opposite being black and white but there's a lot of gray in the middle everyone's so different there's also a very different scope of what disability might mean for one person to the other so with that in mind can you tell us a bit about some of the qualities that make Odie and Arlo close and what they connect over and how they are just in some ways just siblings like everyone else. 
they laugh at the same stuff. They have shared jokes. Odie, like Alu's favorite book is um, The Snail and the Whale. And Odie knows his favorite line from it. It's right at the end with the humpback whale holds out its tail and on cruel snail after snail after snail. She'll go up and say that to Arlo and he'll just piss himself laughing. So they know they have their common jokes. But a lot of the time it's this, and I have it with my brother, it's this understanding of your parents that no one else has. And I just feel that they're forming this sort of alliance against us almost. But it, it's that it hasn't always been this way. It's only really been, I must say, in the last year or so, like there's been good and bad. There's definitely been times when Arlo has been shirty with Odie. And I've been lucky I've been able to ask um, beautiful Hannah Divney, who's an advocate in the space. I work with her a lot now and um, she's got CP and she's in her 20s. And I was hosting an event with her and she always asked me, how's Arlo? And I'm like, oh, he's getting really pissed off with Odie. Like when he's in his chair and she's running around, I was like, is he just is he jealous? And she was like, bang on, 100%. He's jealous. I've got two sisters now and I still have days where like it pisses me off, like how easy it is. So being able to have that perspective, I mean, we can't know for certain, but it's been a real comfort now that I'm actually talking with adults with disability to know how to better support my son. Arlo's not speaking, which adds challenges. That said, I feel like he communicates in so many other ways and that he can say a thousand words with a single glance. And I think Odie really um, has learned that as well. And I just love the perspective she has on the world. I wish I'd grown up around kids like Arlo, around kids with all sorts of disabilities. Because even just seeing, like I saw her on the playground the other day and I was watching her, she was on the Flying Fox and this kid came up to join her and I could see this kid had some kind of physical disability. And I sort of held my breath because I was like, oh, she's going to say something about his appearance. And she did. But what she did was she pointed to his shoes and said, my mom wears those Ugg boots too. And I was like, oh, bless. Like, they just so get it. Like she just gets that disability is a part of being normal. It's a part of life. And I see it, you know, with Arlo's classmates. He has like 30 little friends who, because of having him as a friend, will just get it. And I just am so hopeful, you know, with the NGIS now that we're all supported to be out in the communities with our kids and disabled adults are out there. And I'm really hopeful that there will be more awareness and more presence of people with disabilities. So there won't be people like me freaking out at the start of this, thinking it's the end of the world. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, back to the question, things they have in common, mostly sense of humor, mostly taking the piss out of their parents, lots of favorite books, lots of favorite movies that they share and activities. They bowl together. I was really good at bowling. Wouldn't have known this had his support worker not forced me to take the kids bowling because that's not my natural habitat. But um, yeah, with a ramp, he like bashes it with his arm and he's he's great. So they awesome. play a lot of stuff together. You know, I sort of was gearing up for them doing separate things all the time and they do. Like he'll do his physio while she does her ballet. But, you know, a lot of the time, especially now that we have our fantastic Fendangle modified we can all go and do all the things together which is great so for those that aren't familiar with cerebral palsy what's a day in the life like for Arlo he goes to a mainstream school but with some support there he does he's got a one-on-one aid with him the whole day so this he's in year one now and he's got two beautiful aids he has one of them Monday through Wednesday and the other one Thursday, Friday. So they're with him in the classroom and they help him to, so Ali needs a lot of support. So he needs help with moving around, getting dressed, toileting. He's tube fed. So two years ago, he got a G-tube put in. So he's nil by mouth, all his water, all his medicine, all his food goes into a tube. We blend up real food. So it's what he was having before, often what we're having. And we just blended up a whole bunch of Easter eggs on the weekend and that just goes in that way so he has a very high um, and significant need so he needs someone with him pretty much all the time um so his aide helps him into the classroom in his wheelchair sits by him to help him you know uh, he uses his AAC eye gaze device in class which helps him speak with his pupils which is amazing so he's still learning but we what do you mean by that that's incredible it is incredible so it's like a tablet that sits in front of him and his pupils are like the mouse, so it tracks his pupils. It's calibrated to his eyes, and it's got cells on it, and they've each got a word or a book or something. So I put him on it, and he always just says, play game, play game, and then there's, like, millions of games he can play on there. At school, they've, like, hidden those cells, and now he's forced to do, like, literacy and numeracy and stuff on there. But this is how he can speak words. He might, he will probably get words eventually, like we can hear sounds happening, but this is a way for him to clearly communicate 
with the community. Whereas us at home, we we don't tend to use it as much as we should because we feel like I was saying, he just tells us so much just because we know him and with his sounds and with his eyes and um, his mannerisms, we sort of know what, what he's getting at. But yeah, this is an incredible device that will go with him through school and he can use it just to be on the internet or watch things as well. But yeah, this is how he is talking which is very exciting. So he has assistance with that. He's got his walking frame in there. So he get him out and he can take steps in his walking frame, which is amazing. The result of many, many years and many, many hours yeah. of physio. So his body, he's strong and he's bright. Um, and with support, he can do pretty much anything. It's just getting those supports and having, you know, people who, you know, were so lucky with his teacher and his school. They've just been all about saying yes, not, you know, and making sure that, you know, we're happy. They showed us three different classrooms at the start of the year and said, which one do you think? We're like, they're all fine. But like, they're so, you know, thoughtful at working with the parents and working with Arlo and seeing what works with him. So yeah, we've been really lucky with that. That's incredible. That eyeball tablet thing sounds unbelievable. <laughs> I can't believe that technology like that exists. So if you're tired one night, you've had a big week, maybe you're feeling emotional just the way anyone does. I don't mean because of Arlo's disability. Do you ever find in those moments that you can't sort of remain as strong or as positive or anything like that? And do you need little mindset shifts that get you through things? Or is the way that you need to support Arlo so habitual now that your headspace doesn't really go there? I love you say if you're you say if you're tired. Are we ever not tired? Yeah, yeah. That was a ridiculous <laughs> statement. I'm always tired. <laughs> you know what? At the start, I feel like my moods were very determined by stuff that was going on with Arlo. But I don't know if this makes me a shit parent. Now if I'm worried about anything, it's work. It's always work. I feel like we've got Arlo down, like he's we've got our family routine and we've got great support. We're lucky and the NDIS, I hope to thank for that. But if if there's stuff I need my head or my head needs sorting out over, it's boundaries around work. So that's normally um, what I need to remind myself and kind of coming back to family and being more focused on family. I don't, and I, I love that I can say that. I can honestly say now that, yeah, it's, ne- it's not other stuff. Unless he's sick, that's a worry. And he does get sick quite a bit. Um, that's then adds sort of an underlying stress where we're like we might end up in hospital tonight but like I said we know we're prepared for that we sort of have a habit of if we're worried going okay worst case scenario we'll be in hospital we're okay we know we can manage that um so no if I'm tired and emotional at the end of the day it's to do with work and I just need to remind myself that there's more to life and to get the freak off my emails (laughs) (laughs) which is much easier said than done I've learned since returning to work so what does work look like for you now so I work part-time at a disability support organization called higher up and I'm the commissioning editor for their news and features platform so I get to commission amazing writers with disability like Hannah Divany, Ellie Dumashelia to write opinion pieces in response to news so you might remember last year Beyonce changed some ableist lyrics that were in one of her songs. That was because of a piece we published at Higher Up from Hannah Divany that got picked up by The Guardian. So we've had some huge wins. It's a really, we're a tiny team, but we're trying to do even a small, tiny slice of what Ramp Up was, which is disability news or looking at news through a disability lens. So I love doing that. I also do the NDIS Know How podcast through Higher Up, which is chatting with other parents and people on the scheme about how to make this very complicated, very promising scheme work for our families. I still get to do things around special like this. I'm speaking at a conference um, later this week about special. And then I've got my magazine, The Blend, which I started when Arlo started tube feeding, which was a similar inspiration. I felt really hopeless and alone and scared when we moved into this space. So interviewed people who tube feed, parents who tube feed, professionals who tube feed and started, uh, well, asked Edie Swan, who was the designer of Collective Hub magazine, if she would make a magazine with me. So it's the two of us. We bring it out annually now. And I just said to her, like, give me the Vogue living of tube feeding. And she has made this sexy, gorgeous aesthetic all these incredible stories, all these beautiful photos. It's a lifestyle magazine for people in the tube feeding community. So I'm super proud of that. And it comes out every Feeding Tube Awareness Week in February each year. And yeah, again, I've just been connected into this whole other community of incredible 
parents and people who are so bonded and so supportive of one another. So yeah, annual magazine, the blend. So yeah, it's mostly, I'm mostly working higher up doing the commissioning and I write a bit for them as well and the podcast and the magazine tends to be what it is. Wow. Just a bit going on. So (laughs) in your book the other day, I read the section where you mentioned the welcome to Holland poem. Yeah. Which when I first read, I found it really comforting. I mean, I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried, as I'm sure you probably did when you first read it, but I did find it really comforting and I thought it was a really beautiful poem. Can you firstly tell those who aren't aware of this poem what it's about? And then secondly, can you tell us why you think it's such a divided, why it gets such a divided response from parents with children with disability? Yes. So it's an incredible, it's an essay, I think she calls it, by Emily Pearl Kingsley, I think is her name. So she is a mother in the US. She's actually a writer for Sesame Street. So writes all sorts of, or she was, and her son has Down syndrome. And she wrote this poem, I think in the early days of yeah, learning about his disability. But it's it sort of compares getting a diagnosis for your child as um, to being on a flight and you think you're going to Italy and you've read all the guidebooks for Italy and you've learned Italian and you're all ready to go and get the pizza and the and then suddenly there's a message that comes across over the speaker on the plane that says, oh, we're actually landing in Holland. And you're like, what the heck? I'm completely unprepared for this. I don't know anything about Holland. I don't know the language. I don't know, you know what I'm going to be doing, what's happening. And you're in Holland and you think it's an absolute disaster. But then you start to notice really beautiful things about Holland the tulips for people. So um, anyway, please read it. That was a terrible explanation. Of no, it. that was perfect. Pollen, where, yeah, you, your perspective shifts and it's, it's, you know, yeah, when you're pregnant, you read all the what to expect when you're expecting. You think you're going to have this journey. You think you're going to Rome. You completely educate yourself around this and all your, in her poem, she says, all your friends have been to Rome and they all say it's wonderful and all your friends have had difficult babies and they've seen all this. And then coming to terms with Holland, which is not where you wanted to go, It's not where you'd booked your ticket to. It's not what you're prepared to. But then seeing this new space for what it is and the beauty in it, I think why it pisses people off, two reasons. Some parents like me, like now I love, it really helped me at the start and I still like it. But I'm like, well, why are we saying Holland is not as good as Rome? I don't know if that is what she was trying to say, but I'd like it if it was two places that were equally as popular, maybe Rome and Paris. Would be, would be, you know, just different, not any better or better. Yeah, I wonder what the Holland Tourism Board thinks of this, by the way. I know, right? <laughs> maybe maybe it's great. Maybe that's a wrong assumption, but I, I adore Paris and I'd like it if it was Paris instead. The other reason it pisses parents off is because some people think, there's some people who parents were having a really, really hard time with this. Everyone has a different experience of it. I think one parent wrote, an alternative poem called welcome to Beirut, like welcome to welcome to a war zone kind of thing. I don't like dwelling on that too much. That's not my experience, but some parents think it's glossing over some Mm. real challenges that they're having. So it divides this, this space certainly, but I think as an entry point, as one of the earliest things I read, it really helped me. It was sort of a gentle way of like shifting my perspectives. I loved it. And Emily very kindly let me put it in special, which was good of her. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem. And I think it, for me and perhaps for you too, it reminds you of the great things that are actually happening happening right now. You get this diagnosis and it's like, well, actually, this day as it was running it's no different to how our baby was yesterday or might be tomorrow. So it's a really lovely reminder. And with that in mind, for people who have no experience with disability, they think their lives are Italy. They don't know how you live your life in Holland. What's it like being at your house around a dinner table at night for people that might think, and I don't mean to say this to be reductive or rude, but might think it's really sad and need oh, a bit of, yeah. yeah. So what would you, what would you want those people to know about what it's like to be around your dinner table each night? I would have thought it was a tragedy if you, you know, said to me, your boy is going to be in a wheelchair, non-speaking, fed through a tube into his stomach. I I would have thought that was the worst thing in the world. It's not. It feels, you say like, what's it like around your dinner table? And it just feels so normal. Like, first off, we don't all eat together. The kids usually sit in front of the TV with their dinner. <laughs> Carlos sits there with his tube. Odie sits next to him at this little table that's next to his wheelchair that we call Cafe Odette. 
And oh, that's beautiful. Her dinner, and he'll usually have something similar but blended um, that we we push through for him. So they either do that or they sit at the kitchen table and listen to music or we read books. But I'll be honest and say mostly it's in front of the television. Don't um, worry, here as well. And yeah. we're excited because there's more Bluey. And when I yeah, say we, I mean me because my son is one and he has no idea what's going on. <laughs> he'll love it. You don't, yeah, soon. It won't be long. Yeah, we're very excited for new Bluey as well. Um, so, if, I mean, I guess when you look at the practicalities of it, like Arlo's dinner requires like sometimes blending, sometimes reheating something I've batch cooked. It requires like seven to 10 medications being ground up in the porter and vessel and then drawn up into syringes. He's got about six or seven syringes that go through and flushes. And the technicalities around the tube feeding are really full on at the start. But now that I'm used to it, honestly, it feels the same as Odie's dinner. Like it's just I'm getting her fish fingers out of the oven while I'm drawing up a syringe for Arlo. It's just it feels the same. And I think that's the point. Like all this stuff looks really different to what I thought it would, but the feeling is the same. Like we feel happy, we feel tired, we feel stressed, we feel joy. We And I think if you focus more on what you're feeling rather than what it looks like, that's helpful. And I do legitimately think we are happier and closer as a family because of this that is not the case for everyone there are higher rates of divorce in families with a kid with disability I know this and I can understand that because it definitely the stakes are higher everything gets more stressful and more sleep deprived and more challenging generally but for us it's been this incredible bonding experience and like we, we have fun like we laugh we joke around like both the kids have a great sense of humor um so it feels you know, the thought of someone coming in and seeing us around the dinner table, like, well, there's nothing to see. Like, it's just normal. Um, just like a, your average family, there's just a bit, it will look a bit different with the practicalities, but the feeling is just a bit of different preparation in the kitchen. Yeah. I love yeah. that. That's that's exactly what I wanted you to say, basically. <laughs> I'm leading into you into these questions where I know you'll give me some gold. So that's beautiful. I have one last question. I actually have two more questions for you. Firstly, for a parent that is doing paid work while also navigating the disability space, what advice would you give them about the early days? I mean, for me, it sounds like a lot to be given a diagnosis and then rock up to an office the next day like nothing's happened. Oh, how do you how do you navigate that? It's pretty much what I did, but like, well, I guess, yeah, once we had the diagnosis, I shared it. I was lucky, my team, so supportive. My editor, her name's Mel as well, Mel Carswell, um, so beautiful, so flexible. I could go and cry and be honest with her. I think tell, it sucks telling people. It's really hard telling people at the start because you don't want to, like you're still dealing with it. You don't want to deal with their reactions. But if you're open about it, people are really understanding um, and will give you, hopefully give you the flexibility. I was so lucky I could go freelance because you just, it. it's so good being, you know, we're both at home. We're up the road from Arlo. If He's in our house or we're up the road from him at all times. So if we do need to go to hospital, we know we can just grab him, like taking that stress out of it. Having to show up and dress up at an office and like be presentable was so hard. And I think any parent, especially a parent of young kids, could relate to that. COVID has shown us you can do most jobs from home in your pajamas. I think employers need to be a lot, and are, as far as I know, being a lot more flexible and accepting of that. So gosh, I would just say push for flexibility, push for working remotely make this work for you and if it isn't I'd yeah I'd, I'd say you know just find something else that easy but no if it's not it's just not worth like losing these early years stressing about work that's not what you're going to want to remember from the early years with your kids and if you could tell Melanie a day after Arlo's diagnosis one thing one piece of encouraging advice or one reflection with hindsight what would that be it will be okay. You don't need to know the future now. Please enjoy this beautiful child in front of you and trust that he will show you the way. That's more than one piece of advice, but I'll just cram that all in there. <laughs> I need to get rid of the word one because whenever I say that, everyone's like, oh, I have two. I'm like, oh, sorry, you can give me both, I promise. It's not a, it's not a test. So that was a beautiful way to end this discussion. Uh, the book that you've made has worked wonders for the people around me and I'm sure there's a lot of people that can resonate with it. So thank you so much for everything you're doing and for chatting with me today. Where can people find you and your work online? Um, I've got a website. I think it's just my name, melaniedimmett.com.au. 
Dot.au. Um, so I update that very occasionally with things I'm up to. Um, social media, I'm on Instagram as the underscore special underscore book. You can buy a special wherever you like to buy books. There's also an ebook and an audio book. And the Blend magazine is free to read online. That's theblendmag.com and NDIS Know How. You can listen to wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. <laughs> thank you so much for this chat today. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, listener. And thank you for making this podcast. I love that you talk about the things we're not meant to talk about. Like you have workaholic mothers on like me who, <laughs> who prioritize <laughs> their work as much as their Oh, I've been and going through that a lot. Okay. <laughs> oh, I've been going through that so much lately. I'm like, everyone says you're more present when you have a full work day. I'm like, I actually just got home and really wanted to do an hour more of work. So bad. Yeah, you make us feel seen. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.